Hey guys, what's up? We are back in the mix. 2022, first episode of the Lizzie Jane podcast. New look, new name, take note because it's not going anywhere. I am so pumped for this year. We have our first sponsors, our first advertisers, a lot more going on on my Patreon page. But without further ado, our first guest joining us for the new year is VJ Neurite. Carmen, she is just wonderful. She was great to talk to. She is an accomplished illustrator, animator, touring VJ. She's in medical school as well as successfully has broken into the world of crypto art and NFTs. She has minted a collection of NFTs via OpenSea that has been integrated to encourage a discussion on mental health and awareness. It's so fucking dope. And this was honestly, I couldn't have started this year with a better conversation slowly getting into the world of nfts it is just this amazing concept where when you learn about it and the light bulb goes off you're like oh is this too good to be true and while there are pros and cons if you are a producer a creator a digital artist anything in that space you should absolutely be taking the time to educate yourself on this because the benefits and and the long-term ramifications are just absolutely unreal and it's cutting out the middleman and allowing you to make money for yourself and not a bigger corporation and it's just it's amazing so without further ado this is lizzie jane and you're tuning in to the lizzie jane podcast first of 2022 with special guest bj nurite Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the first podcast of 2022. Today, we have a super special guest on. Um, As we're moving into 2022, I'm really broadening the arrangement and variety of our guests. Um, We're starting with Carmen. She's joining us today. She is a VJ and she is a just content creator, everything from visual work to now you're in like the NFT space and crypto art space. So Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really happy we got to have you on today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, Excited absolutely. to be here. Yes, definitely. I think it's a great way to start out the year. And I think a lot of people who are kind of on the back end of the industry has have seen your name as VJ Newright. And I think that's just like so fucking awesome. When I met you, I was just blown away. You're like, yeah, I'm here and I'm doing visuals for Virtual Ride and Barely Alive. And I've worked with Whipped Cream before and I've worked with all these other artists. And when I kind of went on to your site, because you were so kind, you had said, hey, like if you need any help or advice, like just hit me up. And I think that's so awesome because a lot of people in this industry do not do that by any way, shape or form. I kind of saw your like clientele list and then everything kind of opening the gates into this new digital art space. And it's super awesome to be able to sit down and talk to somebody like you, let alone you being like a female on the other side of the industry, which is cool because there's not really many of them. So if you just don't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners, I would greatly appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Carmen. I go by VJ Wright, and I have a few different avenues of interest. I um, early on became a VJ and f- moved into animation design from there. 
Um, so that's kind of uh, brought me to like my main uh, company, which uh, works on developing live shows and live visuals for lots of different artists, uh, as well as traveling with them to do the shows live. Uh, so that's kind of one little aspect. And I'm also in medical school, which is kind of an interesting yeah. side, I would say side thing, but that's also a very big main part of my life. Um, and then I'm also in this NFT space and I make a lot of art related to mental health and I raise some money for mental health charities that are local and kind of had a first opportunity to make art for myself rather than for a client. So that's pretty neat experience. And that's become a lot bigger uh, role in my life than I ever really expected. So, yeah. And um, in last year as well, I've kind of been more into illustration as well, which um, is what brought me into the NFT space was getting more into illustration and concept art design. So yeah, that's a little overview. Awesome. Well, you're definitely, oh my gosh, I had no idea you're in medical school. Let's just pile that on top of everything <laughs> else you're doing. That's incredible. And and yeah, it's just it's it's pretty wild. I've recently been exposed to the NFT space. I had my hairdresser had pretty much informed me that he wasn't going to be, you know, staying in his current position because he was doing so well off of NFTs and in that space. And I, you know, I had obviously seen kind of the comeuppance of it, uh, like last year, kind of a year and a half ago, you started seeing those rooms in Clubhouse and kind of started listening in and seeing what was going on. And man, I thought it was just way more intricate than it actually is. And when I could actually like conceptualize being a, a creative in this space, it's just so amazing, especially for someone like you where digital artists before, I mean, and even illustrators, you could just make prints, I guess, or or sell, you know, things here and there. And now it's just like this whole new world in, in Decentraland and, and all of these other platforms that are offering these these nfts and and before we get into that i kind of want to touch on you being in the electronic dance music space were you always in this space with the intention of doing what you do now or was it something where you were a raver you loved the scene and then you kind of were like how do i fit in here what am i good at um yeah interesting so i guess I started, I, I kind of enjoyed the music a little bit before I started to become a VJ, but not for very long. I made friends with uh, one of the artists that I actually work for now, which is Virtual Riot. And I'd met a few friends through him and one of them was a VJ. And he showed me kind of how, what VJs do. And I was really intrigued and thought this could be a really cool hobby. Um, and I was about to start medical school and my one of my mentors said, you should do something uh, before you go to med school that's completely unrelated to medicine because you probably haven't done anything. You know, he looked at my like uh, resume for med school and was like, you didn't have any free time or do anything that was like fun basically in the last four years. He's like, go have fun, do something interesting. So I got involved in um, being a VJ or learning how to be a VJ. And I never really thought it would turn into a career. Mm -hmm. So um, that was really 
the progression of that was really interesting. It went from just having a few, you know, playing VJing for a few artists that came into town that were already friends of mine. And then, you know, starting to want to make the content that I was playing around with and then actually working for clients and designing shows for them. So it really just kind of progressed very naturally from a hobby to something that uh, played a really big role in my life. And yeah, and that's kind of, you know, now present day, um, I think I've branched that off even more and picked up illustration and and gone into the NFT space and really tried to just explore and diversify uh, what I'm doing with um, my creative art. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a little bit of an analogy to like a producer where most DJs that I meet, you know, they start and they're like DJing other people's songs. And then it gets to the point where they're like, oh, I want to make my own music. I want to create these songs. And then they get into production. And then you realize with that skill set, all these other avenues that you can go down and all these other things that you can do. So for somebody who's listening, who's like 101, school for dummies, what is VJ? How would you tell them exactly what your job is in the space of like electronic dance music? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess from the bare bones, it's basically like DJing, but with video. Uh, It's more complex than DJing. Sorry, DJs. Uh, It definitely is. is. It it is many, many layers of video that you're chopping together, effects that you're adding and trying to time everything so it's in time with the music and the mood of the music. Um, Further from there... You know, it starts as just playing with some video. And then as you kind of progress in your skill set, you learn how to put the whole show together. And I think this is something I learned very early on because I actually learned on some full production tours, uh, watching how they did it. And all of them are on headsets and they're timing everything perfectly. And one person is directing the show. So they're giving lighting calls. They're telling the lasers when they get to go. And when the visuals are going to like tone down, they're um, directing the SFX. And so really that's where I am now is that's I'm, I'm really directing the show uh, and the moments you have throughout that show, whether it be the lasers coming up or the lighting or the type of lighting and the colors and the mood for every song. And so it's very different from when you first start VJing because when you first start VJing, it's very like plug a computer in, chop some video together, make it on time. And so, yeah, it's kind of fun to watch how that progresses, but that's kind of the role of a VJ can really expand from just being this kid that walks up and cuts video, which would be more like old school DJing. And then there can be more of planning the whole show ahead of time and and really working as a team to put the whole show together. So really is a sliding scale with that. That's awesome. I had no idea that you were kind of the one like on the headset saying, okay, these are our cues. This is how this is going. So then do you time code the whole show up to what the artist is doing? Or is it more, you know, you receive direction from Val and he's like, hey, these are the colors I want. These are the visuals we're working with. Go do your thing. Yeah, no, Val um, Val lets me pretty much make 
uh, whatever I want for each of the songs. Uh, we talk sometimes about ideas for the songs, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm making most of the content myself. And then he's making some stuff as well because he likes to play around with animation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really kind of us working together to really come up with ideas. And then I'm really responsible for coming up with the colors, the timing, how we want to do everything. Um, so really, you know, that part, is what I spend most of my time when I'm preparing for a show. It's preparing what color calls, when we're going to let the lasers be up because when the lasers are upright, you kill the visuals on the back wall. So the lasers look extra awesome mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So really like um, I'm doing most of it planned ahead of time, but all of the video I'm timing myself, including we have a few time-coded visuals for specific songs, but even then I'm listening for the cue of that song to then, you know, time the video uh, manually. And then we're doing it that way. So that's how we do most of his because the set is so dynamic and it's always changing and he's always putting new songs in, taking songs out. So if we were to time code everything, every time it would be so much work to uh, line everything back up and and pull songs out and then re-export the whole sync file for the whole show. And then he would also have to play a pre-recorded set, which he doesn't want to do. So I think really your um, time code is limited when you um, want to have changes to your set. Uh, there are some artists that do full time code shows like Excision. I but to say Excision, I know. Yeah, Excision does that, you know, but um, it's really high budget if, if you're going to do something like that because of how often you're changing things, how much content you need. Um, time coded visuals are extremely expensive because every visual is cued perfectly onto a specific moment. So, you know, we have a few time coded visuals that either I've made or um, we've had, you know, hired out for a song or specific you know, release had a time code visual and we use those, you know, but they're all timed manually, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So in the sense of like examining like excision set where his is fully time coded, the beauty of like having you there is that like you can do a mixture of everything and then the, the feels. And I know like with most DJs that I talk with, unless they're of the size of excision, you know, they're always throwing new songs in there. They're putting new changes in there. If it was going to be time coded all the way through, would you need a VJ or would you need someone to oversee the process of the layout of that? I always think about that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You would still need a VJ because time code is not great at the moment. It fails constantly. Sometimes you just can't even get the time code line to work. Um, and you just have to do the show without it. So currently I actually use a time code line so that I can see what songs are coming up in case, you know, the artist jumps around or cuts a song out. I can kind of see a few songs ahead what's going on. Um, That time code line works probably 50% of the time. So if you had a fully automated time code show uh, and it just doesn't work, then you have to time the whole thing yourself. And so a lot of those VJs are there also as backup for when it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's very complex to set up time code and get it to work correctly. So that is quite a complex thing. You need a skilled individual to help you do that. Um, I think it's every, every DJ's dream to just be able to have this time code sequence that just 
they hit play and they don't need to bring a VJ with them and it just goes and it's really easy, but we just don't have anything like that at the moment, unfortunately. So well, yeah. The future, the future, hopefully <laughs> in the future. Um, yeah. When you do time coded pieces, I'm like super curious now that you've like unraveled this like time code world. Um, do you use a certain software or are you like, are you in like Resolume or is this this whole other integrated thing that you have to be able to see what he or she is playing on stage before it happens at the certain BPM at the certain minute. Yeah. So usually um, I'm just listening. Like most of the time I don't even have, I'm so I'm telling three different people directions on what needs to be done for every song. So most of the time I barely even have time to look at the screen to see what's coming. So most of the set I do off of, Oh, I know what song this is, you know, this is purple dragons. And so I'm ready for to hit cue number two at this moment. And I remember that for every song. So um, it's all in Resolume. It's all just cue points and you're just timing it based on when you hit that cue in the song. Um, And usually, um, but obviously generating time code is a whole nother thing, like actually designing the time code that's done in, um, for me by hand in Premiere or After Effects, depending on um, the complexity of the animation. But usually you're bringing in that animation into like Premiere, creating it to that song at a specific BPM. And then the artist needs to play it at that BPM in, in on the day of the show. And if they don't play it at that BPM, things go wrong which has happened so many times and when it happens it's like heart crushing because you time it correctly and then you see it's off but you can't do anything about it and you know those are the moments where we uh like when we reflect after the show we're like oh man you know either the artist knows he did it at the wrong bpm or you know like that's usually what happens. It's like after the show, it's like, Oh man, I forgot to play that song. I'm sorry. And you know, we move on, but yeah. yeah. Oh my God. How it works. Like a millisecond (laughs) causes probably so many troubleshooting issues when it comes to time code, which is just fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So before you were like working with all of like the larger clients like Riot 10, Whipped Cream, Barely Live, Wednesday, all of the cycle people as well. Were you, did you just kind of ride the VJ wave until you were working with them? Or did you very quickly after you started working with stock, um, get the wheels turning to, to start creating your own visuals? Yeah, I've created my own visuals for, I'd say like, half a year into being a VJ, I started creating my own content. And some of my first, like, slightly bigger clients, I grew with a lot of them, you know, like uh, Virtual Riot, Barely Live, uh, Riot 10, Whipped Cream, all of them. I, you know, I started with them when they had a lot less followers than they do now. So I've been working with them for many years and we've been slowly developing their visual brand. And, you know, now it's grown to a point where the show has actually got a lot more complexity to it. And typically once a year, you know, they call me and we make some new visuals and that's like the visuals we use for that year. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the artists I tour with regularly, like 
Barely Alive and Virtual Riot, who where I'm, you know, touring every other weekend with them. Uh, I make content regularly for them because we're constantly having ideas to add into the show. So we kind of just do it as, you know, we go and we just either buy, um, hire out, you know, some custom content or I'm making content regularly to add into that show to like keep building it. That's awesome. And do you typically work with like Adobe products like Illustrator and Premiere or are you doing illustration in a totally different like world of products? Yeah, illustration is different. Um, but I use, I use Adobe products for all of the like putting video together once the animation's done. Okay. So I usually use Cinema 4D for like um, 3D animation uh adobe after effects for 2d animation and premiere is really to put the stuff together like time code for example or a video edits things like that um and then i sketch with a, a different program in my ipad um that's completely unrelated to adobe i kind of tried using like photoshop initially but didn't really um find it had everything I wanted. Yeah. Um, so I moved uh, away from Adobe. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I've used a little bit of illustrator as well, but, um, most of what I do on the iPad is uh, Adobe. And then I do, um, a lot of like the, yeah, most, that's most of it. I'd say like, I started a little bit in blender as well. That was where I kind of like got my footing in the door, but Blender was really crappy when I used it many years ago. So those are the pro main programs that I use. It's such a whirlwind. It's a whole other world that like is used to create everything to come together yeah. for like one piece. And it has to be like so amazing on like huge festival stages, seeing like your work and being like, holy shit, like this is pretty cool when it all comes together. Like, are there a few like moments in your career or like certain festivals where you kind of were able to take a step back and be like, holy shit, this is really cool. Honestly, like I, I always find this like bucket list that I made, especially early on, like when I was first being a VJ and I had all these artists I wanted to work with, all these festivals I wanted to play at. And like, I found it like a few, like a year and a half ago and I was like, oh my God, I did all of these so long ago. And like, I never even remember like being excited that I accomplished them a little bit. Like you're so in the moment and you're so focused on the next big thing that I feel like there's only a few moments that I think I can count in all of the years I've been a VJ where I've actually sat and been like, wow, that was really cool. Or, you know, like most of the time you're just like focused on the next thing, which is kind of sad uh, to some degree, but Our yeah. Our moves forward, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely something like coming out of COVID where a lot of granted, like it's obviously like still not back to normal in a lot of places. A lot of fellow producers and like industry workers I know like had massive 2021s because they worked so hard in yeah. COVID and then they came out and they were getting bookings, they were getting this and they were getting that. And it was really hard for people to like enjoy the moment because it felt weird and it felt like we weren't back to normal, but everybody was crossing these things off these bucket lists. And I just looked back at 2021 the other day 
And I'm just like, holy shit, like you've been wanting to do these things for like four years and you did them and you didn't even enjoy it. And it's so it's like, it's, it's pretty crazy. And it's something that I definitely am going to try and focus on more in 2022, where it is important to obviously think about what's next and plan ahead. And I'm very much so one who's along the lines of if you put the work in and you kind of keep your head down, it'll happen and just keep preparing and da da da. And when the luck falls in line, like it's because you just need that little extra bump. But it's also, you know, the flip side of it is a lot of these firsts won't ever be firsts again. So you should try and enjoy them as they come. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a hard thing to remember to do. And Especially, you know, we all had a really difficult 2020 where we sat inside and the industry went away and it was scary and we all had no idea of the certainty of the future of the industry. And so I think that was really terrifying. And we were all telling ourselves, when we get back, we're not going to take it for granted. But what do we do the second we're back? We all take it for granted. So it's just kind of how it goes, I think, sometimes. And it's... Uh, it's the only thing that's kind of unfortunate about it. And the other thing for me that like, I don't know, when I finish a show, let's say it's this big show and I've been look, working really hard the last few weeks to get ready for it. Then afterward, I'm just so upset with myself over like the smallest things that might have like gone wrong or been slightly off or, you know, I wasn't the happiest with. And those little like, yeah, that little voice inside my head is always telling me, it's like, it doesn't voice. allow me to enjoy it. It's like, it's, no, yeah. you could have done better. Let's think about how that could have gone better. Um, how this show could have looked better or this, you know, like everything. So um, I'm always kind of playing those things through my head and I'm quite hard on myself. I think if you ask the people that I've worked with, rarely am I like getting off the stage with like a huge smile on my face that I think it went amazing. So, but. Yeah, that's my mind in a nutshell, in a freaking nutshell. And it, yeah. I, I think it's one. I think it's a girl thing, and two, <laughs> yeah. and two. I think it's this quality that, unfortunately, I find in really successful people is that like they are nitpicky and they do pay attention to detail and they are overly aware when something goes wrong because you put so much work into it. And people, we work for months and months and months on end for one hour for 45 minutes. And, and that's where like all of the work comes together. So it's like if one or two minutes out of that one hour is messed up, it feels like you lose a little bit of something and it sucks. And it's stuff that to the common eye, no one would ever know. They would never know. Like you could play the same song probably five times in a row and nobody would even care. But <laughs> But it's just like for your own integrity, I feel like when you put so much work in, you just get, you really tend to micro focus on those things. And and it's the same thing. A lot of people that I work with, like they sometimes say it's a bad quality, but then they sometimes are like, it's a good quality because it's that balance of being self-aware, but also having the moment where you have to say, hey, Let's focus on the 96% of it that went good and remember that 4%, but don't let it like define your whole entire performance. But it's hard. It's so hard. You know, it's it's like I'll mess up lyrics sometimes or I'll play on my keyboard and I'll mess up something and I'll be like, fuck, everybody knew. And like, 
I don't know, like the media or whatever will be like, we didn't even notice, like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's so true. And it's, it's a constant battle. I mean, it's like, you have to balance that level of, of being nice to yourself, but not being cocky and then being hard on yourself, but not being, you know, damaging to yourself. So, and you work yeah. with all types of people in this industry. So you kind of see those people all across the board, I guess on the back end of, you know, usually when I have female industry workers, you know, whether they're agents or VJs, producers, um, like have you had to overcome adversaries because you've just been a woman, like walking into the game plane and being like, Hey, I'm going to be the one giving you directions today. Da, 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 da. Nice to meet you. Here we go. This is our show. Like when you are working with the light guys and working with the audio guys, I assume that a lot of them you've never previously met before. Yeah, it's hard to say. I'd say about 50-50. 50% of them are people I work with all the time. Probably forgot their names, but they're really nice people. And yeah. I remember their faces. Yes, yes. Some of them, I obviously remember their names and they're good friends. Uh, and you know, you see them at so many of the festivals. Some of them are new faces. Um, I actually find the people I work with usually in front of house aren't... you. I mean, I have a few stories, obviously. But the people in front of house are generally pretty okay in terms of like, you know, sometimes I get comments or sometimes they won't listen to me or things of that such. But most of the time it's pretty like, it's pretty fine. But I think a lot of my experiences actually come from working with management and teams where they talk to you differently because you're a woman Mm -hmm. or you you know, I've, I've, when I was working for whipped cream, one of hard summers, I went to VJ her set and I get to the, um, front of house and they, they won't let me in. And I have a, I have a production pass and my friend standing next to me is, um, was Gasly's VJ, who's a guy, but he wasn't working that festival. He was like there hanging out and he had a guest band. And they let him write in and they don't let me in. And I have the production band and they, and they are like, let me see your band. And they're like, we need to call and confirm your band that this actually belongs to you. And Gastly's VJ, um, his name's Connor just turns to the guy and is like, are you serious right now? He was like, are you kidding me right now? I have a guest band. She has a production band and you're not letting her in. And she has to VJ in 10 minutes. The, the headliner right now and you're not gonna let her in because why she's a female and finally he like disgruntledly lets us go in but it was the crit like that was one of those moments where you're like okay I mean that was so obvious because I was a girl mm-hmm. that he was you know not <laughs> believing that I belonged there which was crazy so definitely a lot of experiences like that or you know Man, I have a lot of stories of management as well, but I won't, yeah, I won't yeah, share we won't those go there. ones. We will go there. Yeah, I, I, there. I definitely... I I have to agree with you in the fact that usually when I go and do sound check or work with anybody in front of house, because I don't have the capabilities to have like all my own people yet, I sometimes will bring in like a vocal tech or sometimes we'll bring in a VJ, but that's about it, where they're much more 
like, hey, if you know what you're talking about, we're in an equal playing field. Da, 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 da. And I think that's really, really cool. And and I that I definitely enjoy that that factor. But yeah, when you come to dealing with certain teams, there's definitely those adversaries that that push forward a lot of the time. But it's just something that I guess we have to keep fighting for. But I definitely think even me from like an outside point of view, looking in at the VJ world, I feel like I see tons of girls who are starting to climb the ranks as a VJ. And I think that's really, really cool. And, and, you know, hopefully just like on our side as like producers, like there's more women than ever. So I, it, it's definitely a wave that's like slowly, slowly growing and, and, you know, it'll be cool to see how it pans out over time, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I hope we get more girls in the industry because right, it to be honest, it's hard to be a girl in the industry. It's oh, yeah. your opportunity the world, the whole culture is not made for you. <laughs> it's made for a man, and that's okay. Yeah. But you know, things are changing and slowly like, you know, girls like defy it and overcome the adversity and are strong enough to get through it. It's fun to watch that. Yes. And really see more of it, you know, all the time. So. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and it's cool because I feel like when we went into COVID, everyone who was kind of wanting to have like a foot in the industry that really didn't, or maybe they had just been working at home or, you know, obviously there is like a gatekeeping aspect to industry work on the back end where a lot of times you have to know somebody to be given a certain opportunity to become one of those roles. And you saw a lot of people kind of take a front foot forward because we were all Twitch streaming and we were, you know, putting up digital media. And that's when really like the whole crypto thing started to explode at a, a vast rate and NFTs started being introduced. And is that when you started to take the plunge into that new kind of area was during COVID? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, it would have been February, March after COVID began. So I started, I started by just making art, um, a few different pieces I wanted to make about mental health. I was really getting into illustration at the time. I was taking courses at the um, College of Art and Design and Illustration. And I started making my own art about mental health because I was really struggling with mental health at that time personally as well. Um, the industry had shut down. I was in med school still, but med school was un- entirely virtual. Um, So a lot of that was really difficult changes. I went from traveling every weekend to being at home all the time. And really, that was a tough thing to adjust to. And I think for me, making that art about mental health really gave me an avenue to really express myself and get my feelings out in some way. Um, And also at the time, I was really... I I was in the working in the emergency room during COVID. um, And... I was seeing the amount of kids that were coming in besides COVID, but seeing the amount of kids that were coming in with mental health issues, we were at five times higher than our normal. And most of the kids in the emergency room were because of mental health and the way they were being treated by the faculty and staff was horrible. I mean, it was like, there's so much stigma and discrimination against people who have mental health illness. And I wanted to bring more awareness to that. And I thought that NFTs would be a really good platform because I would be able to sell my art 
uh, host rooms that would talk about different mental health topics and get other med students involved in that. And then at the same time, be able to give a percentage of that to a mental health charity and also make up for some of the funds that I wasn't getting from working as a VJ, um, VJ animator. So um, yeah, that was kind of why I started getting into it and really didn't think it would get to where it did um, for me. And so so crazy. And it's like you kind of taking both of your worlds and putting them together. And that is so cool. And I feel like obviously I tenfold wish COVID never happened and we're still dealing with it, but there are these little things that I've talked to when I have these guests on that would have never happened in their life if our life didn't stop. And that is so amazing. And mental health is just something that, you know, you would see people in our generation talk about it, how nobody was speaking about it, how nobody was talking about suicide rates going up and the mental health cases going up. And and it's crazy to hear from, you know, your perspective where you're on the front lines where, you know, you're seeing COVID patients, but you're also seeing this other entity of of illness just completely rise. And instead of it being treated, it's just, you know, here's a Band-Aid for it and here's this. And it's not actually helping the individual, you know, set a game plan to to become better. And, and so when you decided, did you do this on your own? Did you do this with a group of people or was, was this just like something that came to your mind? You're like, I have to do this. I contacted one of my friends who I knew had already been dabbling in like crypto art mm-hmm. and got some information. Cause honestly, when I started, I didn't even know what Bitcoin was. I was like, okay, I know a little bit about what cryptocurrency is, but I don't really understand how it works. It's something about solving math problems to make money. Don't really understand um, what that's all about. Um, so I talked to her a little bit and she was kind of giving me little tidbits of information. And then she's like, get on clubhouse. And I was like, okay, I'll try it out. You know? So I start going into clubhouse and in a matter of a month, I was hosting rooms, moderating topics, like, you know, people were looking out for the rooms that I had scheduled and we were getting thousands of people in these rooms. I held a a room that went for 19 hours. Um, and we had like 3000 people come through the room. It was crazy. Like, so we were doing things like that all the time, every week, and was really building a brand and a name uh, completely from scratch because none of what I was doing before translated. None of the following I had on Instagram cared about my NFTs. Like, so it was a completely new thing. Um, creating a new following, creating a new collector base, learning what collectors were. And yeah, it was kind of just crazy, um, completely different thing to get into and definitely wouldn't have done it if I wouldn't have been had the time I did in COVID. It's a whole nother world for, for people listening that are not, I would say familiar with the topic of NFTs, like everybody kind of knows now that it's like a non-fungible token, but from a creator kind of bucket, I know you have like the consumers, you have the creators, and then you have like the miners. And and like from your perspective, could you give some insight on like exactly what you did to be able to put your artwork for sale? Yeah, like I guess, you know, initially I had just really gotten into like a few of the lower level platforms 
uh, worked really hard with networking to try to get accepted in some of the more higher end platforms and got accepted onto foundation. And this was the first platform where I really dropped an NFT. Um, and I, I worked on the artwork. I worked on this piece and organized how I was going to drop um, all the rooms you were going to host, like they call them drop parties, mm-hmm. um, marketed those rooms for weeks in other rooms that that, that was going to happen and that people should attend and there would be giveaways and things of this such and really, you know, got a, got a room together that then, you know, you do the drop. I couldn't believe that any of the art was even selling. You know, I thought for sure this isn't going to sell. It's my first NFT. Um, sold a few pieces for quite a lot of money that I never expected I was going to get. Um, and then from there was like, okay, well, what do I actually want to do in this space? Well, what do I want to, what kind of art do I want to create? What kind of brand do I want to make? And I really wanted to focus on that mental health aspect. So a lot of the art I started working on was related to that. And slowly after I had started making some art, I decided to work on this project called the Emotion Monster Project, which was creating little monsters that all represented a different emotion. And with uh, the idea that these monsters would bring light to the idea of communicating emotion and more readily, um, as well as like overcoming barriers to communication. So I was really focused in on getting this project off the ground. And then the generative art projects popped and the collectibles popped in the NFT community. And I dropped my, um, four, I think 40 monsters are out so far, 40 monsters. I did them in a couple different waves and they sold out on the day I dropped them. Oh my God. Like 40 of them gone. I did 30 at first and then I did another 15 and then I made this whole series of emotional support pets and they all sold out as well. I mean, it was just crazy. I couldn't believe it. And I haven't been able to make art fast enough to keep it up on, you know, up there because it sells immediately the day I make it. And I just never expected something like that would happen out of the NFTs. That's so wild. And those were displayed on foundation or were those on OpenSea or? Those were actually OpenSea because they're collectibles. So with OpenSea, you actually can look at statistics for that um, for that collection, how much volume has been traded, the floor price, which just means the cheapest that you can buy them for, and a number of other like statistics that you can, you know, activity logs and things like that. Where foundation is more about auctions. So... I kind of stuck with OpenSea because there was more utility and it was also the most popular platform that was being used at the time. So initially, very early on, those very uh, high-end, need-to-be-accepted platforms were really hot. And then when collectibles boomed, OpenSea became like it uh, in terms of like the main platform to drop NFTs. And, you know, there's still a few other really great... Um, acceptance platforms like where you have to apply like known origin and super rare and I got accepted to known origin I still haven't dropped anything on there but um, you know maybe one day I'll get around to it yeah you probably never saw this coming really into your life that's so crazy yeah definitely not (laughs) so wild because it's just for people like you where you know you really just like any other DJ you know, 
if you weren't in medical school are predominantly depending on your income from touring and and more so in your place where, you know, you're getting commissioned from your visuals at home, but the majority of all of us make our money from touring and from, from bigger shows. It's just this whole other way to be financially comfortable and even more so more lucrative than anything you could have ever imagined on the touring circuit in our industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the greatest thing about it is it offers you stability if COVID gets worse. You know, it's this other avenue that I can do my art and express my art. But also, it really is the first opportunity visual artists have ever really had to make art for themselves, ever. And, And make money off it and also make royalties off of it, which... We've never had that opportunity the same way a music artist would with their music. So I think that, you know, it's really a huge thing. And I think any artist that's a digital artist should be involved in the NFT community just because it's something amazing to be a part of. You know, it's this first opportunity you have to create for yourself to build something that you want to make. And, and let your creativity really flow beyond what someone else's ideas are. So it's 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 absolutely amazing. Like the first time that I really kind of had that light bulb click of how everything was structured and how the process worked, my mind just goes, "It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. This isn't real." Da 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 da. And and now, like exploring down that avenue, it's just. Out of everything, I think it's taught everybody in our industry that you just can't depend on one source of income. And, you know, I've seen a lot of artists start Patreon or they're doing lessons or they're doing commission work or they're doing work for video games or X, Y, and Z. But from our end too, you know, I feel like producers should be involved in NFTs if they can as well, because it's, you know, I see people on like beta catalog, like Luca Lush and, and, you know, people in that lane where, they're selling just whips and songs for 0.5 ETH for auction for this. Mm-hmm. And it's like you compare that to Spotify where you're getting paid 0.00004 cent a stream. And it's amazing. It's allowing people to actually make money off of their art. And it's, and it's cool because it's like, yes, there's no customer service number. There's no buddy to call if something goes wrong, but it also takes out the middleman. And I think that's why people who don't fully understand it are so scared by it because it's this whole new world where the creator and the artist is fully in charge as long as the platform runs. Yeah, absolutely. And also like, you know, you don't, we have never gotten royalties on our work. You know, I make some, I might make a time code video or video for a release animation. And then that release grosses 50,000. And I see what, like, you know, a thousand dollars from that or something like, because that's what I was paid once, but they're getting 50,000 the first year, 40,000 the next year, 30,000 the next year off of it. And it's like, we'd never see those royalties. If the song gets to millions of plays, makes millions of dollars, again, you're not seeing any more than you were seeing from the, you know, the release that grossed 50,000. So yeah, it's really a tricky one, especially as you create for bigger artists, like pop artists and things like that. It, it really, um, 
it gives you the opportunity to make royalties on the artwork that you make. And I think there's something special to that. So does that work in the facet of like when somebody buys, um, you know, a one out of one or two out of two, or is that in, in the perspective of somebody like playing the NFT over and over and over again? Like how exactly do you receive royalties? Yeah. So you receive royalties when someone resells your work. So I sold um, some monsters, some of the monsters, I sold them for quite cheap because they're collectible items, you know? So I think I sold them initially for 0.12 or something like that. And those monsters flipped and sold like the other day, I sold two of them for one ETH. Oh, wow. So then you get 10% of that royalty of that sale. Um, and people are also making money off of your art as well. So really being able to offer that utility. Um, I had another artwork I sold for a half ETH that resold for three ETH. And, you know, it, every time it sells, you every time it changes hands, you get money off of that. Where previously, if you created a physical piece of art and you sold it for $5,000 and then you became Picasso and that sold for millions you wouldn't see any of that. You would have only ever seen the $5,000 you initially sold it for. So I think really, especially for artists, like somebody huge, like people, it that's huge. You know, he, he is able to make money off his own future success. And also the person that bought that art is also going to benefit because it incentivizes the artist to grow their brand and become a bigger artist and be worth more because they'll see those royalties and that person will also have an appreciated asset that they can sell for more money in the future. So it's really a win-win situation. And I think it's a great thing for everyone. It's crazy. And it's like, there's just no over overseeing third party there's no all of you know we're gonna tell you how to do this and this these are the yeah. lines and, and we're taking half <laughs> yeah and we're taking half of it it's it's wild and I can't wait to see it grow and I still do think that for anyone that is intrigued and haven't really taken like the first step into it that it's still early on I mean I would say that right yeah oh yeah definitely okay yeah I remember saying like oh I'm in this too late and Everybody was like, no, this hasn't even popped. And then I watched it pop to collectibles and then pop to the next thing. And like, yeah, we are very early. So if even if you're getting involved now, I think there's so much for direction it's going to grow. And I think becoming one of the early artists that gets recognition is huge. That's amazing. So what are you up to now? Are you back on the road? Are you finishing medical school? Are you just kind of, did you put NFTs kind of on the back burner for when touring season's over or what's going on? Yeah. So right now I'm actually um, quite a few things. I've just finished all of my coursework for medical school. So now I take um, a board exam, which is called step one. uh, And that is like the biggest exam you take in med school that determines uh, if you can progress in your medical career. Um, So assuming I pass that and everything is good, um, I'll keep going with med school. So that's where I'm at with that. Uh, With touring, I'm still on tour with the artists. Um, We didn't have actually a New Year's gig. I think this is the first New Year's Eve I didn't work in like four years. It was crazy. I was like at home watching the ball drop on a laptop when I was in heaven. I was like, this is great. (laughs) It's not this huge, crazy, like rigmarole of 
flying across the country for New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day. And then, so yeah, I quite enjoyed that. That was uh, nice and unique. But yeah, I think most of like heavy touring really starts back up in May, April, and then goes pretty heavily until like November, Mm -hmm. December. Um, and then you'll have your New Year's gigs usually. But other than that, like January, February, slightly slower for touring. Um, yeah. Same with content creation. Some artists are getting their content packages uh, ready for the spring, but a lot of them don't contact you till March, April, May, asking for their content for the summer. So a lot of the times, like this is quite slow for content and tends to be the time I really try to focus more energy on nfts because i have more time off um so that's kind of where i'm at now i'm working on drawing some new monsters uh and i'm working on uh my i didn't mention this before but the monster series for the nfts are eventually getting turned into a children's book so i'm working on that right now oh that's so exciting yeah so a lot of effort behind the scenes and um, I also flip NFTs for um, side cash, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I like to buy and sell NFTs. I'm a collector myself. So I do a lot of that as well when I'm not as busy with school and with uh, touring. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, you have so much going on. But it's all exciting <laughs> and it's all like stuff you want to do. And I feel like that's really awesome and not, you know... I would say a privilege that a lot of people have right now, given like the current state of like our country and everything going on. And I think you've just honed your skill set to just be able to do whatever you want, which is so, so awesome. And this new NFT space has just opened this whole nother world of possibilities. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. It's awesome. It's really exciting stuff. And, um, stoked to be a part of it and have found nfts yeah absolutely so before i let you go um for anybody kind of in i would say these are two separate questions because i feel like they're a little bit these worlds will collide a bit more i feel like as the future comes but for now they're you know separate entities for someone who um, you know, they may be VJing at home, they may be animating at home and creating their own visuals and they don't know how to VJ. What are some of like the first steps that you would advise for said individual to get a gig or get their first booking? Is it just simply reaching out to people or is there a certain pathway that you went down that you would say is worth sharing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for VJing, I think... Obviously, practicing at home is a great one. That's how I started on a TV at home with uh, downloading whatever artist was my favorite artist at the time, their mixes, their 30-minute mixes, and I would just get stock visuals and practice. So once you feel confident enough and also practice setting up all of the equipment, um, you know, mapping to like practice mapping to more complex stage um, designs and things like that, um, then you can kind of reach out to other VJs that already exist in the industry and see if any of them will let you come shadow them uh, and kind of show them a little bit of the ropes on how they set things up or how they map or tricks on how they map and how they, you know, use Resolume and things like that. And then once you get a little more comfortable with that, maybe you can find a VJ, especially if they're a house VJ. So they're doing the whole night for all of the artists, like all of the artists that are bringing a traveling VJ. 
uh, find one of those artists or one of those VJs because they'll probably let you have some screen time, especially for some of the early openers. And just try to see if they'll let you come in and VJ for a few minutes or maybe like help them out and maybe they'll let you have some wall time and start there until you get more confident and more comfortable. And then you can kind of work on trying to network and get your own clients and things like that. But I I would like caution people from jumping too many steps ahead and like, you know, trying to get hired when they maybe don't have the skill yet because yeah, it's a tough one. And I also would caution people not to go work for artists for free because it sets a precedent that, um, VJ should be paid for their work. And I think that's a really important thing that we need to maintain just because uh, VJs already don't get paid very much uh, in comparison to what a DJ is making. So going and working for free sets a sets that mood that that's okay to not pay someone for those services. So I wouldn't recommend doing that either. And those are kind of my two bits of advice. But yeah, find a VJ and, awesome. and try to befriend them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. I feel like it's an, it's in kind of the same in any field where, you know, kind of hone your skill set to at least like a beginning level and then try and, you know, either find a mentor or find a local club where you can kind of partake and, and see what's going on on the ground. That kind of a question came to my mind when you were talking about that, that I'm going to ask you very quickly is that when you, like you were talking about like how you map visuals, because all these stages are so vastly different and can be like so insanely perplexed as far as the led walls go when you walk into like a huge festival stage do you have time to map your visuals or are you sitting down before the artist plays and you're like this is how this is going to go this is where this is planted uh just depends um they send you something in advance called a pixel map which will tell you the dimensions approximately of each of the led panels now i would say 40% of the time they change that pixel map from when you get it to when you show up. So unfortunately, um, when I have time, I do programming. Um, I usually do, depends on the complexity of the stage, but sometimes I take a whole hour. Sometimes if I'm doing time code, which I, we don't do very much anymore, but if we're doing time code, we'll request two hours of programming, uh, and permitting to the festival and the conditions of where you're coming from the day before, you may or may not have that time to program. Mm-hmm. Shows always go better when you program <laughs> than when you don't. Uh, but sometimes you show up, you had a gig the night before, you show up 40, 30 minutes before the show and you haven't even had a chance to put up on the video wall. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't always work out the the way you'd hope it would, but you try to kind of accommodate and plan in advance as much as possible and um, try to minimize the time that you need to get ready. But I've been put into some crazy situations. I can't, Definitely. I can't. Yeah. That would stress me out so much. Oh my God. I just sitting down and being like, all right, here we go. Let's go. Uh, and that's why, you know, as you said before, don't, don't jump the gun. And I think that's on. Anyway. Yeah. And I, I think that's the main reason it's not a VJing itself, the bare bones of like physically plugging a computer in, getting it up on the wall and like doing it not too hard. Mapping can be extremely complex and you can get in over your head super quickly, especially really big festival stages like EDC, you know, like ultra things like that. Like 
it's really easy to go, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and if you're lucky, the house VJ will come in and save the day if you put yourself into those situations, but it's better to not put yourself in those situations and really learn um, and be honest with the artists that you're working with, that you're a new artist. I, the artists that I started VJing for, they knew how young I was in terms of a VJ, but they were also young artists. So it was fun. You know, they, they paid me what they, what they could. I still got paid and I did it. I worked as hard as I could. I would go extra early, spend more time at programming, trying to learn how to map uh, and things like that. And so just, yeah, really putting that effort into learning as much as possible before you commit to some of the bigger artists and stuff. Yeah. And I think that's a cool aspect too, is like maybe find somebody who's a little bit above your level or on your level and grow with them because then you guys are able to have, because the visual aspect is just so important now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that that's what I did with a lot of the artists was grew with them and then eventually got bigger artists that I didn't grow with. But, you know, it took many years before I was kind of doing that. Definitely. And then my other question, my last one for you is, how would you recommend getting into the NFT space? Yeah, the NFT space, that one is... It's constantly changing, so it's a little bit trickier to give advice on that. Clubhouse and Twitter spaces are probably the best two places to look. Um, Finding rooms that are opener, more beginning level NFT rooms that are just talking about basics of um, how to do NFTs and answering questions, that's a really good avenue. Or finding an NFT artist that's willing to mentor you in some places or answer some of your questions. Uh, but yeah, like connecting on those two platforms really allows you to have more personal connections with people and to do the networking that's really necessary to like grow a brand and grow a following and grow a group of people that are really invested in what you're trying to um, do in the NFT community. That's amazing. Um, So much information that you just like downloaded. I'm so glad I could have you on today. And yeah, like when I talk to people, they just say that being in the community can help you more than you could ever imagine is like involving yourself in the discords and in the Twitter chats and then the clubhouse rooms can help substantially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Discord's another one. It's not my favorite platform, but I still do it. I'm in the same uh, Yeah. Discord is something that I was told to make a long time ago. And I was like, oh man, okay, here we go. Yeah. And I finally did it. I was like, I hate this app, but I'm on it. It's fine. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for coming on today. I greatly appreciate all of your knowledge. I'm sure a ton of people are going to tune in who, you know, aspire to do what you're doing. Huge congratulations on, you know, good luck on the test. I'm sure you're going to ace it and, and, you know, take your next steps in medical school. And I'm really excited to see what you're going to do in the crypto world. And I'm sure I'll see you at a festival soon. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Lizzie Jane podcast. First one of 2022. I am so stoked for this year, you guys. I appreciate the first full year of support and we are going to make major moves this year. I'm very excited to introduce people from the NFT space and the world of gaming into the podcast. 
Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify Podcast. Follow us on Google Podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcast. Check out my Patreon for exclusive content regarding the podcast. Because I promise you that shit does matter. And I will see you guys next week.